0: Welcome to our podcast, Schizophrenia Three Moms in the Trenches. From the place where schizophrenia and real life collide East Coast, West Coast, Middle America. With Miriam Feldman, Mindy Greiling, and Randy Kay today we're going to focus on the personal again for the last few episodes we've been talking about issues and that's very important too but it only means something if we see how it is for a person and for their family so i am so excited to welcome to the podcast rebecca lynn phillips this is mental health recovery a personal story rebecca you and i met nine years ago and in chicago we were just reminiscing and we've been facebook friends ever since and rebecca is a published author and a speaker and a mental health advocate And she's here to do what she does, which is to share her story of recovery and what happened before recovery to help others who need hope, maybe shine a light on a dark subject and show that life can happen again. So, Rebecca, you've met me, but you haven't met Mimi or Mindy. So, I thought we usually just start each episode with sort of a 60 second update and we'll sort of add to that just a a bit about us so that you know us before we start grilling you about your life. (laughs) So you know me, I'm Randy and I wrote Ben behind his voices. My son is uh, who I call Ben for these purposes. He was doing really, really well, although without insight into his illness. So up until COVID, he was living with us after about a decade in a group home and doing quite well, working, worked his way up to working full-time as a restaurant server and was managing quite well. He was like 65% back and we were thrilled, but COVID hit and he lost his job and everything fell. So he has just recently been released from his ninth hospitalization. This one was five and a half months long. And he is back in treatment reluctantly and not on the medication that worked so well last time. Right now he's in a group home. And my current concern is, and maybe we can talk about this later, I am thrilled that he's back in a community, that he's not living in his childhood home and comparing his life to his high school friends. I'm thrilled that he has a community. And frankly, it's easier for me to step back a bit However, when I went to see him this week, I noticed that he's made some friends who are trying to talk him out of the fact that he has a mental illness and that it's not about mental illness. It's about spirituality. And so when I hear that, it scares me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's kind of where we are. I, I am not in charge of him. The staff is there and they will certainly listen to my concerns, but on the one hand, as a mom, I'm thrilled that he made a friend. On the other hand, and we've talked about this in past episodes, and Rebecca has listened to some of our past episodes. We've talked about the, the peer recovery movement and how for some it's great, and for some maybe not so great. Maybe we can get to that after we hear your story, but that's my, that's my primary concern right now. What if somebody tries to talk him out of taking his meds? But so far, so good. That's where we are. Mindy, you want to go? Sure. I know that fear
1: because Jim being a vulnerable adult has had a, I call it a kind of a fake chiropractor who did once talk him out of all his meds. And Jim thought that was a good idea. So I know that people with um, schizophrenia and so forth can be vulnerable when they're not, especially when they're not doing as well. But for us here in Minnesota, we're Real because it was made it up to 60 degrees today. And that is like a <laughs> heard of heat wave in early March in Minnesota. So we're really happy. And also, we have a first world problem is all I can really talk about with Jim today. And that is, he lost his phone this week, he's lost many phones had many phones stolen. And usually that was not even worth mentioning compared to the other things we were going through and he was going through. But because he's doing well for the past um, year and a half, losing a phone was a big thing then because he's mm-hmm. couldn't, he missed his psychiatrist appointment that he had on sure. his calendar. And he had to cancel his caddy waiver worker because he can't let her into his apartment if she can't call him when she gets there and she comes time all day long. She often doesn't set a time. And um, uh, so he he's been at a but hopefully a new phone will be coming tomorrow. But that's a very small problem in the grand scheme of the total- nice,
0: nice to have a mundane problem. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and Mimi, if you can introduce yourself and
2: Hi, I'm Mimi Miriam Feldman. I am. Um, I'm the mother of uh, 35-year-old son with schizophrenia. And I've also written a book called He Came In With It, which is a memoir of the 10-year period when he first got sick and how it affected our whole family. And right now, he's um, he's doing well. You know, we've sort of suspended. We're in the process of shifting his medication to clozapine, but we've suspended any... Uh, shifts in the in the dosages right now because I'm in Los Angeles working and um, I'm enjoying the sunshine, boy, I gotta tell you, And he's doing very well. He, he seems quite engaged and doing well right now. So I'm pleased.
0: So that's great. We are here to, and I know Rebecca, you talk a lot and I know you've had your ups and downs as well. This is not a Cinderella story necessarily, and I know you'll be truthful with us. I was sharing with you before we we started the show that I know Mindy's son talks to her about his voices and what he hears and, and what the illness is like for him. I think Mimi, it's fair to say that you and I just know what we know from observing. Yeah. And so, to have the chance to really talk to you is exciting. And now this is all about you. So let's just start with you're 46. You're an author. I mean, there's a lot we're going to get to. And I know, and do you have a diagnosis? It's schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia. Okay. Thank you. And so let's just start with, with your early life. Can you tell, Just I, we just want to hear your story. Like what, what was your childhood like before the diagnosis? And and then we'll get to your dark days, but let's just start at the beginning. How did your life start out?
3: Well, I had a very loving family. Um, my father was a college professor. He was really smart. Um, he had a PhD in communications. And, and um, my mom, growing up, um, had a medical transcription business at home um, so she could stay at home with me and my younger sister who's seven years younger. I've always been close to my family, to my mom and dad and my sister. Um, I moved moved around quite a bit. Um, I was actually born in North Dakota and uh, lived in Oklahoma, Kentucky, Georgia, and now Kansas where I've lived since I was in sixth grade. But, um, I, I feel like when I look back on my childhood, I see a real bond emotionally and spiritually. My family was very spiritual and religious and, um, in church, going to church was kind of the big thing to do. And my, my grandpa, my mom's dad was a minister and kind of growing up, we just went to school. We went to church, we did chores, um, You know, I played with friends. Um, It was normal, so to speak, Mm -hmm. in many ways. But I think when we moved, I live in Topeka and when we, capital city of Kansas. And when we moved here, I had left behind my very best friend, Katie Ramsey in Shawnee, Oklahoma, where we had lived before. And that was really hard for me. And that was the first time in my childhood, I was about 11 or 12 that I started feeling really sad and I didn't, it was kind of this new feeling of feeling really connected to my emotional pain. And, and it was real difficult to explain to my mom and dad, but um, that was the first time I had really felt really sad. And then later on in my teenage year, and um, I, I went to a private school in Topeka from sixth grade to 12th grade and like I said, you know, before going to church and going to school the normal thing, but looking good and acting good and behaving. And my dad was a wonderful provider and wonderful man, but he was, he would at times be hard to please. And I wanted to make my mom and dad happy. And I had this real drive to perform and to do my best. And actually, um, well, I had a one of the things I did was I babysat. I had these wonderful families that I babysat for. And um, I did that in my teenage years. And I actually, when I was 15, um, my dad had written some academic books. He had done, I'm sure you all remember the student protest movement of the sixties, but he did a book on it and got published. It's in universities all over, but I'd always looked up to my dad for his writing. And so I decided that I wanted to write a book and I wrote several pages and it was prayers for teenage girls. And it was just kind of my crying out to God or whatever for, with these feelings that I had, because I went to this bookstore in Topeka and I thought, surely they'll have a book for teenage girls about issues that teenage girls go through, but I never found it. So I thought, these adults don't know what they're talking about. So I'm going to write one. So, and how old were you when you wrote the book? I was 15 when I started it.
0: <laughs> wow. I saw it online and I didn't know what it was. What was the name of
3: it? Heart to Heart. Heart it's, to Heart. It's a devotional. And, you know, right. so much of it, it's kind of outdated in what I think about, you know, some of my thoughts. And, but I, I went to my dad's study. He had an office downstairs and I didn't tell my parents what I was doing, but I looked at my um, dad's bookshelf and got the writer's market. Remember the book, the writer's market with all the list of publishers. So I found these five publishers and sent it to him, sent it to the publishers and the fifth one, Thomas Nelson in Nashville accepted it. But, um, so that was kind of a big thing for a teenager, you know, so to be right there. There, there you were this like really <laughs>
0: accomplished, maybe slightly people-pleasing, but <laughs> yeah. a loving family.
3: And then what happened? Well, and then I I just was real hard on myself. I I um I had to get good grades. I and and it doesn't mean I didn't enjoy some of it I mean and didn't enjoy getting an A or someone saying this is a good essay or this is a good or you did a good job babysitting or you did a good I was in theater and in high school and I loved to have affirmation but I I think I started getting more introspective at age 17 16 17 and I think although I will say that when I was first diagnosed with schizophrenia, it was schizoaffective disorder, but it became paranoid schizophrenia. But I, looking back on my high school years, I can see the paranoia because I would start to sleep in my closet because noises and it wasn't like my family was noisy. (laughs) I don't remember that, but I just, it was like, I was trying to escape my mind my mind had all these thoughts in it and i also thought my dad was out to get me which he would get mad at me sometimes but it wasn't like he was hurting you know it wasn't like this horrible home situation but it's just that i i had these thoughts of self harm and getting mad at myself and i don't really know where it came from i didn't have an addiction i never had of course growing up in a a strict, you know, <laughs> spiritual home. We didn't, there was no drinking or smoking or, you know, but I really don't know exactly when it started, maybe 16 or 17. And I went to my mom and, um, this lady, a friend, family friend who was a counselor had been seeing me for counseling without charging us or anything. She was just being a family friend and listening to me. And I told my mom and dad, or I told my mom that I thought I needed to be hospitalized. I, I don't know where that came from. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know why I did that really. Well, what was, I mean, you know, so you're
0: like... Up until about a minute ago, you sounded like any sort of high achieving type A personality teen. And then suddenly you went to, I'm hiding in my closet. I thought my dad was out to get me. I mean, did you hear voices? Was there anything going on that you were aware of now looking back
3: that- Well, you know, I've always been, you know my spirituality was always a part of me and what you were saying earlier about your son's friends saying it's all spiritual. I think for a lot of people with schizophrenia, the spiritual part of it is a real big part of what they go through, of what we go through, because it was kind of these spiritual feelings of God is mad at me. And just this heaviness of like this, almost like this oppression type feeling like, like this, like I was not pleased. I wasn't being an obedient child or something. And I wasn't pleasing God or it was almost like this obsession with spirituality even though and even now jumping back to now I, there are times when maybe I think I hear the voice of God and I'm like okay maybe that's not God directing me to get in my car and leave my mom's house and go across a river or whatever you know but it was almost an, a controlling feeling like like the voices or and I didn't see it as voices then and even now it's hard for me to say I have voices I when I've been interviewed in the past I've said I have intrusive thoughts because that's what my friend Cassandra calls them intrusive thoughts and um it's easier for me to deal with because when I think I have voices I'm like oh that's what all the That's what all the other people with schizophrenia have. They have voices. I don't have voices. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what I was going through when I was a teenager. I think I had all these condemning thoughts and it wasn't like they came out of the blue, but it happened eventually. It just started probably 16 or 17 years old. But I did, like I said, I went to my mom and I said, I need help. And I don't know how I, how I did that because I, I mean, what if the help she wanted to give me was not you know, what if they wanted, you know, we've all heard stories of help is help that is not helpful, you know, and, and so it's
1: wonderful <laughs> that you were able to have that insight and you went to your mom uh, for help. And you know, it's interesting to hear for me to hear you talk about why you didn't want to say you had voices, you would rather think of it as intrusive thoughts. Because when I was writing my book, I worked with my son and, you know, he's about your age, he's 43. And he we only had one big argument about my book. And that was it. I had written that he was hearing voices. And he kept saying, I do not hear voices. (laughs) (laughs) But then later on, he would you know asked me why i said that mean thing about him and i said i didn't you know that was your mind playing tricks on you you heard my voice and so he would acknowledge that but yet we'd get back to this book i do not hear voices yeah so now just explain to me why he had such a fuss about that and i think that's important you know you are as he is and i think all of our sons are very bright and he knew that it wasn't acceptable to hear voices, so he preferred to call it exactly what you did, an intrusive thought. <laughs> so for that, you've given me um, right away in this program um, insight into helping with my own family situation. I'm going to discuss it with Jim later on. My question for you is, we as mothers were dealing with our children when they first were hospitalized, and we never could at least I could speak for myself, but probably for a lot of uh, parents, could understand when the meds made Jim better, why he couldn't realize that and didn't want to stay on them and then had you know good periods and bad periods, ups and downs. Could you help us understand from your perspective what was going on from your side of things with going on and off of meds if you did or the ups and downs and hospitalizations and in and out
3: yes well the the world of medication is <laughs> is something that is so oh it's just it's I you know I I was put on well let me go back
0: yeah let's so was, let, yeah let's just I, fill in the story you so you went when and, I was
3: yeah when I was eight I was when I was 18, I went off to school and I basically started struggling on campus. I was away from home and I started thinking I was in, in the city where my pa- family was, but I was in the city where my school was. And so my mind was kind of splitting and I basically had a psychotic break and I lost a lot of weight. Um, I was working in the cafeteria at one of, at one of near one of the dorms. And, and I had either, not,
0: you had not been hospitalized ever at this point. You had, just I had
3: was- been hospitalized, but I wasn't put on medication as a teenager. Um, I'm not sure why. I don't know. I can't even, it's like, I can't even remember that. I don't remember the medication. I just remember when I was 18 that my parents came, I was at Kansas State and my parents, my mom came and got me. I called my dad. I had been sleeping in another building in the bathroom in the art building on a cot in the woman's bathroom because I thought I was in danger at my dorm and I was wandering around campus. I wasn't going to any of my classes. I wasn't eating. I was almost raped. And because this man, this other student started following me. So my parents, my mom came, took me and thankfully she was able to get me out of school without it affecting my grades or getting F's. But my parents, um, took me actually to a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it was there that I was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the time, schizoaffective disorder. And And you're like 19 at this point, I was about 19. And they um, told my parents that they had just come out with this new antipsychotic called Risperdal. So it had just actually come out in, I think 1993 been approved and it, they were told it acted immediately. So um, when I was at this hospital, I was there for about a month in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they put me on this Risperdal. Well, um, before then I had been doing weird things, and um, trying to trying to feel again, just touching myself and doing weird things, because I was trying to get my feelings back. And I was talking to people weird, and and so this Risperdal started acting immediately. I'm not immediately, but I mean, I could feel something happening in my brain. Wow, because my feelings were almost, I almost shut down emotionally. And I was so scared of that, that I would have to be in a group home the rest of my life. And then my family would leave me in this group home and I would die there. I was really terrified of that. And so the Risperdal gave me my feelings back and helped me to con- reconnect with my feelings. You know, some- question. it seems to me
2: like you, you had insight all along you know, like you were aware that things were... Because re- the thing that we've all struggled with over and over again is our sons not understanding that they are sick. And it seems like you've really, even in the very beginning, you were aware that something was
3: wrong. Am I right? I, yes. I, I think I was aware that something was wrong. I, to be honest, I saw it as different things like hatred towards myself or fear or panic, or anger, but I I did have a little bit of insight, like you said, but it wasn't actually until, and I went on and off medication, I I was, I was on Depakote, and Lamictal, and all these different medications, and um, it wasn't until a specific hospitalization in like 2004, I think it was, that the psychiatrist, sat across the table from me I remember and I was fixing to get discharged and he said I know so and so a family member can accept your illness and that was why I was struck one of the reasons I was struggling so much because I wanted my fam, my mom and sister were more accepting but my dad was struggling he said but can you accept your illness and I and I thought oh, by golly no one's ever asked me that before <laughs> and you know I thought I thought I'm actually going to actually think about this, you know, and it really, it really, after I, I struggled with jobs and school and I never finished school and I never, you know, I not give two weeks notice at jobs and in the medications changed. And I really feel like when he asked me that it, something in my psyche shifted where I really thought. I actually have a choice here. Someone's presenting me with a choice. I can either accept my illness or I can, and you know, you guys have talked about Dr. Amador who I actually got to meet in New York and um, cause he was in the documentary I was in, but uh, Dr. Amador talks about, you know, anosognosia and the inability It's not denial that you have an illness It's a feature of the illness that you don't have insight into the illness. And so when the psychiatrist asked me that, I really took that in and really, it, it began a, a real deep work, work in me that I can t- consider, I mean, I continue to this day because even even now, sometimes when I'm at the coffee shop and someone looks at me funny or I think they're looking at me funny and I think I could say something to this person and then something says, maybe not. <laughs> and then I think and then I think okay remember I accept and I don't do it always with joy but I accept <laughs> that I have an illness and you know I do it I'm at the coffee shop I'm at the library okay accept here accept there Accept. it's a daily thing and it's taken years years and years of struggle wow so wow. when you
1: accept your illness you still mentioned that you do the what we see as a typical thing with our family members going on and off your meds. So when you accept an illness, why would you go off your meds? Did you think you were healthy enough not
3: to need it or what were you thinking then? Well, that's a very good question because I did accept it for a while, but then I, um, what had happened was my, my doctor, he was an hour away in Kansas city and he had been my psychiatrist for many years. And so he was moving. So his wife could actually become a doctor and she had, she was going to med school herself. So we were splitting ways and I was trying to find a psychiatrist and I was doing it on my own. I was trying to find it a person to see me. And so I kind of went to different psychiatrists and one of them put me on a lot of meds and I was so bad. And the voices, I can say that now, <laughs> but you know the the thoughts, whatever, were saying to me, flush all your medication down the toilet. And this is like five different medications, and like of the Depakote was on fifteen hundred milligrams or something like that. And and I had gained weight, you know, and Which I didn't like for anybody. Yeah, yeah. And so you know what I did every night, I. I strategized about how I was going to flush my medication down the toilet. And I did a little bit at a time. And I did not tell my mom, obviously. And my mom was panicking because I had just gotten my own apartment and I wasn't letting her in my apartment. I started a relationship with a 72 year old man, my upstairs neighbor, and he took advantage of me. And I was only about 37, 38. Well, I was probably about 33. I don't know something in my thirties, but I got off all my medication because I didn't want the side effects and I didn't want it in me. And and I drove to a nearby town in the middle of the night. One day I drove to a on the turnpike or I drove on the highway, which I had never done in my life. And I drove to a nearby town and um, started talking to the people on the main street downtown. Weird things. Like they could read my mind. And then, so obviously, getting off the medication was causing me to have hallucinations and delusions. And I did a lot of scary, scary things. In fact, that was when the law enforcement, and I do mean law enforcement, uh, s- several people talked to my mom. And because I was leaving messages on a man's phone that I used to babysit for who had a pretty important job in Kansas. And um, so law enforcement was called and it was a really scary time for my family. And this was in the winter of 2006 and January and February of '07. And my sister who was, had just graduated from college and was working for a, uh, a company in Wichita which is about three hours South of Topeka She came to Topeka and um, my mom had researched different hospitals and they, she was even gonna take me to Mayo's if she could get me there, but she read about the University of Kansas Hospital in Kansas and they would take my insurance and my sister who's seven years younger and she's been there for me, but she drove me and my mom there and I was completely off all my medication I had gone from about 220 pounds over months to about 120. And um, that's where it all began was at that hospital. But, um, you know, when you're completely immersed in your psychosis and you're thinking Muslims are after you or whatever, and they're trying to kill you, or, you know, I was thinking really just, I was having dangerous paranoia. And it was really scary. And even now I look back on that and that's what makes me stay on my medication in many ways is to say, not out of fear because I don't think I should stay on my medication out of fear, but out of, oh, that's why, you know, or there's a reason I'm on medication. And the other thing I've gone through is just acceptance of that time acceptance of what I did even though I don't understand it but it was because of you know the psychosis
0: well at this point in the conversation it's pretty clear that this is going to be a two-parter please download our next episode episode 10 for part two of Rebecca's story where we'll talk about what happened after these dark days and how she rebuilt her life and messages to those with schizophrenia Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches with Randy K, Mindy Greiling, and Miriam Feldman. To get in touch with us or to learn more about our books, please visit our websites at miriam-feldman.com, mindygreiling.com, or randyk.com.